The following is sponsored by the Logos Bible Study Platform. Visit logos.com slash go to get started and hear more at the conclusion of today's podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The occasion of Satan's condemnation or being cast down to the earth is his lifting himself up in pride. If a man does the same, lifts himself up in pride, then he is uniquely satanic in that regard. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master and I'm joined, as always, with my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dalzell. James, how are you? Doing well. Looking forward to a uh, one-on-one conversation today. We do these sometime, and uh, so this should be fun. Yeah, I love it when we have a chance to do these. These are these are great, and um, wish we could be in the same room, but uh, we're grateful for the opportunity nonetheless. And, and today's topic, the one that we discussed um, earlier, is uh, the fall of Satan and the fall of the demons. Now, that might seem very obscure, but it is something... Uh, about which scripture speaks. Scripture speaks of Satan and and these demonic beings and and even of the fall of them. And yet when you begin to sort of peel back the layers of, of that discussion in the scriptures, it raises all sorts of interesting questions. So looking forward to this topic today, and I just want to start it off, James. I'm going to ask you a question. Are Satan and the demons originally good and then follow-up question, because that one might just be a one-word answer. Is there any good left in them after their fall into sin? Yes. And now here's the, the drum roll. Yes, but let me qualify the second yes. Um, and by the way, we this conversation between the two of us did begin in the same room. It did. Uh, years ago when you were my boss in the School of Divinity and we collaborated and decided to offer a course on demons and angels at Cairn University. Right. Uh, And so this really put me into this uh, topic originally. So let's get to your first question. Are they originally good? Yes, because they are creatures made by God and created by God. I think of like Psalm 104, 24, behold, how many are your works, O Lord in wisdom, you have made them all. That has to include everything that falls within his handiwork, including even those invisible things. We're told in Colossians 1.16 that Christ is the one who, that the Son is the one who created all things visible and invisible. Uh, That includes even Satan and the demons. So, yes, and I think maybe we should say, like, just a little elaboration on that, that they were not by nature wicked. They're not, or we can even say they're not naturally wicked. Um, They are made good and upright, that there's an original uprightness and righteousness in them. There is a state of being, at least for a moment, in which they stand, in which they are shining angels in God's presence. We have to start there. I mean, these are, as you said, the sun is, is... Uh, is responsible for the creation of things visible and invisible. The scriptures tell us that. The 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 Bible tells us in in Genesis one that after God's creation in six days, He said this is very good. So they are created good, 
Now, you went on and, and gave a provocative answer to my second question, and I knew you would come through and give me a provocative answer. <laughs> yeah. um, is there still goodness left in them? You said yes, and then you immediately wanted to finish that sentence. Yeah, because so let's get into it a little bit. Those holy angels, just like um, just like men and women created in God's image, were created in such a way that it was possible for them to fall or to defect um, and that we should say that it's naturally possible for uh, the holy angels in their original state and for mankind in his original state to defect from that original uprightness. And we should further say that that does not mean that they had a natural inclination to sin. In other words, if they had a natural inclination to sin, then what we would have to say is that God built them bent, that they were already right. twisted. So the possibility of sinning, Turretin and his elenctic theology does a good job of kind of parsing this out. The possibility of sinning or falling is not the same thing as actually being ordered to or twisted or inclined toward. So the inclination is something that is spontaneous, uh, that is not a piece of their nature. Now, the question, is there any good left in them after the fall? Um, the reason I want to say yes is because of what sin is, what evil is, that evil is a deprivation of the good. It's parasitic on the good. It can only exist where there's something that is substantially good that can be defiled. So you can't, you know, the easiest one is to say, is a hole in a sock, a, you know, is a hole in a socket a bad thing? Yes, because it's the lack of thread where thread should be in, the, in a sock. But the privation of thread can't exist without a sock. In other words, you, you don't have holes in socks without socks. Well, you don't have evil or corruption in things without good that is being twisted and maligned and, dis and, and mangled by that evil. So the evil requires good as a host, and yet the inverse isn't so. Good does not require evil as a host. So good can subsist. Evil can only exist as a privation of good. So in that respect, there has to be a created goodness that remains in the devil and in the demons in order for them to be broken, so to speak, in order for them to be twisted and corrupted. Corruption only exists where there's a good that is being corrupted. Um, Bobbing says this in, uh, I think it's in volume two of his Reform Dogmatics, that he would say, yes, even, even Satan remains good uh, in this original respect, because there is no such thing as pure evil in the sense of evil existing completely independent of some good. Evil is like a hole in the sock. Without the sock, there's no hole. Without a good substance, there's no evil. So I guess that would be my basic. Well, and and something else to add to that, it doesn't speak particularly of their of their nature, but the fact of the matter is that the outworking of their wickedness will ultimately be used to glorify God. In other words, God will receive praise in the end. We know this from the book of Revelation at the destruction of Satan and these other evil beings so that that he will he will be granted the uh, he will be glorified in, right. in, in their destruction so we can say that there's good in in their end in as much as even their bad end individually is actually a good end from uh, from the perspective of the glory of God manifested that's right now but, okay let's talk about the the 
origin of their fall. Is there, what do we know from the Bible? Is there a particular sin which caused Satan and the demons to fall? There are traditional texts that are used. Isaiah 14 is often used. Ezekiel 28 is often used. But in your in your judgment, how definitive can we be about that? Uh, when you mentioned those two, uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 are often used. They're often used because of the scant explicit biblical texts that actually point to this. There are a couple of New Testament ones, I think, that gesture in the direction of the original fall of Satan and the demons. Um, I think we should say that the sin by which they fell, and I kind of want to stand off of the causal language because I want to leave sin as kind of a madness. So I don't want to I don't want to find causes, but I, I take your meaning. Just what what is that sin by which they fell? And yes, yes. The answer that is often given by fathers, medievals, and even many Reformed theologians is that it's the sin of pride. Um, and sometimes correlated with the sin of pride is the sin of envy, because envy is a corollary of pride in as much as it despises those things that others possess that you think you ought to possess. And so there's so envy is a kind of corollary of pride. Those two passages are, are not um, undisputed, particularly in the like modern commentary literature, because they both have an historical context in which they're referring to um, the, uh, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre, respectively. Right. Um, and so the temptation is to see only one referent that the Bible, when it uses language to indict the king of Babylon can only have the king of Babylon as a referent. Whereas I think probably in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon, just like in, in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre, are being indicted, but the language used to indict them has um, cherubic and seraphic <laughs> connotations about, yeah, the language. Heavenly language. The language is Eden language. angelic and in its, in its connotations. Maybe we should just look at those two briefly, because this really gets to the, the primary text, and then we'll look at a couple New Testament ones. Ezekiel, or Isaiah 14, 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, how you have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations, you said in your heart, and then we get to kind of the, we get to the the sin of the heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne mm -hmm. above the stars of God, probably a reference to other angels. Often angels can be called sons of God or stars in that sense. Um, and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recess of the North, and I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. So the pride is easy to see there. Is this pride, uh, and by the way, the uh, the star of the morning, the Vulgate renders that Lucifer. Lucifer, right. That's where we and get it, that. It has the idea name. probably of shining one, someone who is someone who does have a created original glory. Um, and so that's the first text. The second one is a little bit more, although, by the way, when it says you have fallen from heaven, there does seem to be something supernatural or at least super mundane uh, in the connotation. So, yeah, we're talking about the king of Babylon, but when was the king of Babylon ever in heaven? If you take it, you know, if you get what I'm after. So you are arguing that there are two reference in view, that it's the king of Babylon spoken of in kind of 
cosmic terms, but also it's a pointer to this yeah, the rebellion. The, the immediate of, of context Satan. is the rebuke of the king of Babylon. But it's tr- I think what the text is doing is it's rooting the particular sin of the king of Babylon in a distinctly satanic character. Does that make sense? So that the Yes. So then that and that and that that leads us to pride, which is often the answer that's given that the sin and is the, the sin of pride. Well, I I, I will ascend, I will that's be right. like the There's most a, high. Th- so that's the first text. The second one, Ezekiel 28. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I, and you can think of, briefly, you can think of cherubs as guardians. You think of the Holy of Holies where their, their wings touch each other on the top of the Ark of the Covenant or where the, the tall standing ones, their wings spread from wall to wall and touch in the middle so that there's a kind of, um, there's, a, there's a jealous zeal guardianship function of a glorious cherub. They are jealous for the glory of God. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Um, holy mountain of God can refer to kind of a, a a garden temple, which can both refer to the original Eden, but can also refer to heaven. Um, in the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And then, and then we get some sort of King of Tyre language here. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. There's a there's sacrilege language here, uh, violating holy precincts type language. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. And then it says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. Uh, and this kind of goes back to the Isaiah 14, star of the morning, son of dawn. There's a, a splendor that is in this creature. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. In other words, you in a certain we might say more colloquially, you lost your mind. You were distracted by your own glory, and your and your mind lost its focus and its devotion, and and well, his will as well. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings. So this is that second passage. Um, I think the New Testament corollary of this is First Timothy three six, where it says that. We need to be careful not to lay hands on a man too quickly. Let him not let the elder of the church not be a new convert. And then it says, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And there's something about conceit or pride that seems to be uniquely devilish as the occasion of Satan's condemnation or being cast down to the earth is his lifting himself up in pride if a man does the same, lifts himself up in pride, thinks more highly of himself than he, than he ought, then he is uniquely satanic in that regard. All right. So just to review, uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, key passages, you're, you're contending, and I would agree, by the way, that there is, there is a, a human referent, a historical referent, but also a, um, a non-human a historical referent, although outside of the, the normal confines of what we think of as, as history um, in this uh, fall of Satan. Now, now that is, of course, as you mentioned, uh, something that many, many modern commentators would disagree with. They would say that this has been used in the past to talk about the fall of Satan, but inappropriately. And actually, it's just cosmic language to refer to uh, the fall of the king of Babylon and the fall of the king of Tyre. But the New Testament point is 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 indisputable in that it identifies pride as the sin that is committed by say this sort of 
paradigmatic model sin that he he has committed that has led to his that ha, that has yeah, been might. the cause of his fall or that led to his okay. fall. I'm not going to use causal <laughs> language. I, uh, pr- your point is well taken. Right, I'm just uh, trying to get it out of my system. Um, we're all doing this. There's a sense in which we might even point out that this is. This sin, in one respect, befits his spiritual nature uh, as a pure, as a pure created spirit. There are just certain kinds of sins that tempt us that could never be the occasion of sin in the devil. So, um, so uh, adul- adultery, gluttony, these sorts of things that are unique to our lower material part. Um, since there is no lower material part in the angel, in the angels, even the ones that fell. There are just certain kinds of sins that are really not available to them given their nature. But pride is pride is less sensual and more spiritual, more explicitly spiritual in character, if that, if that makes sense. So there's a certain suitability to the angelic nature of this sort of temptation, whereas other sorts of temptations would mean, I mean, how could gl- gluttony oversleeping. <laughs> These are sorts of sins that tempt us, but they don't tempt uh, angels. And since spirits aren't tempted toward, you know, sloth, for instance, I don't think that sloth is, a te- is something that tempts angels. Pride and then the corollary of envy, despising those who have what you think you ought to have, those two things are uniquely suited to the angelic nature of Satan and the demons. And as you pointed out, that that underscores the seriousness of pride in our own lives. It really is uh, uh, the great enemy of our soul in that sense. And 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 uh, it's um, the example of Satan ought to underscore that for us. And, and it comes at um, Satan's first temptation of Eve. Uh, and the day you eat thereof, you shall your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. And the sense of and you ought to be. I mean, this is you deserve you deserve this. You are worth. <laughs> and worthy of more honor than you currently possess. And you should just go take it even illicitly. All right. We're, we're running short on time, but I want to ask one more question, which has to do with demons. So we have Satan. We've talked about the fall of Satan and some indications that we get in the scripture and some lessons that we learned from that. What about demons? Um, would, would you Would you simply lump all that together and say, what Satan did, the demons did in following him. Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, and there's a a couple things we should say just in distinguishing uh, demonic fall from human fall. Uh, we should say that the angels who fell fell with him, but they didn't fall in him. Uh, and and I know those two prepositions might seem like hair splitting, but there's a world of difference. Uh, we fell in Adam. And so with him in that respect, because Adam acted as our federal head. When Adam, you know, when Adam sinned, we all fell in him because he was acting as a public person on behalf of a people. Whereas Satan doesn't have a federal headship. He has a leadership role relative to the demons, but he doesn't have a federal headship role. And so it's not that they were legally or forensically considered to be in Satan so that when Satan fell, they necessarily, every angel commits his own original sin. Whereas for every human, except for Jesus, Adam commits our original, our original sin was committed by our father. The original sin of every angel is actually unique to that particular angel that fell. Um, So we should, we should make that distinction. Right, right. But, but in terms of timing and in terms of 
the situation, as it were. Um, this is a fall that that takes place of Satan think, and these angelic beings. I think that these demons incurred the condemnation of the devil by participating and by agreement with him in his own first sin. Uh, and it seems to be the way it's recorded for us, something that happened very quickly and very decisively. And perhaps we should even say, like with looking at like Revelation 12, that many of the holy angels instantly, in other words, there was as soon as Satan falls, that instant, there's a, um, there's a moment of decision <laughs> kind of um, explicitly placed in front of every holy angel. Do I concur with him or do I resist him? Neutrality is not an option. Right. And so I think there's there's almost uh, in the immediate moment succeeding this this fall. And also because angels don't deliberate the way that we do. Angels don't move through a set of major and minor premises and then collate to get to conclusions because they're not moving through material phenomena, trying to get to the intellectual base of it. There's an instantaneous, a rapidity in angelic knowledge where you don't have a whole bunch of angels, I would say, sort of hanging out on the sidelines saying, hmm, should I follow Satan or should I hang with Michael? <laughs> you know, this kind of like, I don't think that there's a long deliberative process because it's not needed because their nature allows them to be very decisive. Uh, and very quickly decisive. And I think you have a very swift alliance with the devil and a very swift resistance to the devil in the majority of the holy angels. And I, if I look at like Revelation 12, when it says that, uh, when John says he saw Satan and the holy angels waging war against the devil and his angels, uh, there, I guess I want to look at that as something that is taking place immediately after the fall of Satan is continuing to take place now and will decisively and finally take place in the future when they are forever cast into the lake of fire that was prepared for them. James, I have a feeling we will try to pick up on some of the threads of this discussion later on. This is interesting stuff. And actually, I'll, I'll often get questions about these things. And so I think it's, it's worth um, talking about them a little bit for our, our listeners. Well, we do thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. We always love hearing from you. And if there, there's a book that we uh, have a, a few copies of to give away. It's called Satan Cast Out by Frederick Leahy. It's published by Banner of Truth. If you go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, give us your information. You can be entered to win a copy of that book. Uh, we'd also like to ask you to to hand this out, pass this along to anyone that might be helped by it. And if you're able to donate, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. According to a recent survey, 30% of evangelical churchgoers want more in-depth teaching. If you want to go deeper into the Word, Logos is the Bible study platform for you. Logos fuses powerful technology with biblical resources. Access Bibles, search tools, commentaries, seminary-level courses, even audiobooks right on your phone, tablet, or desktop. Logos offers nearly 200,000 digital books from the world's top publishers. Logos editions have been turbocharged with power data that connect them with the rest of your library. So whether you're comparing Bible translations, tackling tough topics, or studying deep theological issues, Logos has you covered. 
Dig into the original language resources without even knowing Greek or Hebrew, and Logos will even help you pronounce the words. Pastors and scholars like John Piper, Matt Chandler, and Eric Mason use Logos in their study and sermon prep. Get started with Logos today for just $49. Go to logos.com go. That's logos.com go. 